Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. We're thrilled to welcome Hans Cleavers, organoid pioneer and principal investigator at the Hubrick Institute for the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. To help host this podcast, I'm joined by my colleague, Sasha Aramina, and special guest host, Jilling Shen, co-founder and CEO at Xylus. Jilling, can you give our listeners a bit of background on yourself and Xylus? Sure. I'm the CEO of, also I've been the Hawkins Family Associate Professor at the Duke Medical Biomedical Engineering, also the director of their Wu Center for Big Data and Precision Health. So in 2019, while I was chairing the National Cancer Institute Patient-Derived Model Consortium, and also their tissue MCI Tissue Engineering Consortium, and I was actually the Cancer Track Chair of Biomedical Engineering Society annual meeting, when Hans and I kind of met and Hans gave a keynote speech at my center symposium, where we kind of really have this idea and we co-founded Xylus with another colleague of mine, Dr. David Shi, who is a medical oncologist. So the Xylus really focused on developing the microorganosphere technology, basically essentially growing tiny little patient tumors in, in tens of thousands of little droplet, droplets for both guiding the patient therapy, but also helping pharma develop new drugs. So in July, we announced a 70 million Series A, Series A fundraise led by the UAE Sovereignty Fund at Google Venture and also LSP, but also by our very own Alex. Just for the audience, actually, I resigned from Duke two days ago to really lead Zylus with 100% commitment. Fantastic. Thanks once again for joining us, Jilling, and excited to have you in this episode. Hans, can you kick things off for us? Can you share a brief intro with our audience? Yeah. So I'm uh, Hans Klevers. I'm... Uh, Dutch. I have lived in the Netherlands for most of my life. I actually uh, knew I was going to be a researcher when I was four years old. So my mother told, told, told me. And I started, as we do in Holland after high school, I went to university. I started biology. This was 1975. And I was deeply disappointed by the state of biology then, which was very descriptive, lots of Latin names, taxonomy, systematics. Very little molecular biology. Essentially, it was mostly developed, I guess, in uh, some cities in the US, uh, UK, and in Switzerland, but hadn't reached Holland yet. So I then also took up medical school, and I graduated from both. For a brief while, I thought I was going to be a clinician, actually a pediatrician. Started a training program. Then they told me, why don't you, with your double background, go back to science briefly, get a PhD, and then move on. And in that year, actually, I actually got a PhD in a year, and I decided, no, I'm really a scientist. I then went for a postdoc uh, in Boston to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the Harvard hospitals there, for four years. And that's where I learned the hard way, I guess, uh, what molecular biology is about. And that was in the second half of the 80s, when gene cloning had become possible, when sequencing was still done by hand uh, with lots of radioactivity and dirty chemicals, and when, uh, for instance, PCR was just being invented. And so since then, I actually returned to Holland in, in 90, rapidly became chair of the Department of Immunology. I actually was an immunologist for about 10, 15 years. And uh, then slowly we developed our interest in stem cells and eventually this led to the development of organoid technology. Thanks for the background, Hans, and glad to have you join us as well. One question that we love to kick off our episodes with to, to get the context for today's maybe conversation 
comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He said, the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? I think we shape our own future by the decisions we make. And for me, that has always been in my science, at least, has always uh, meant to follow the science. So we've never asked very deep questions that we're going to answer 20 years from now. We essentially constantly did experiments, kept our eyes open, not too many hypotheses because they tend to take us in the wrong direction. Just observe, 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 make a discovery, interpret you know, what it means, how it can be used, and then move, the, move along that path that essentially science carves out for you. And that's been how, how we, my lab, my people have carved out the future of, of our science. And I think it works very well, this approach. So very opportunistic approach, go where the science is easiest and where most things are, are going to be discovered. And don't pretend that you know better than that you can outwit uh, nature and be smarter and come up with hypotheses that you only have to prove. Hans, I'd like to start um, our scientific discussion with a dive into uh, the technology you've enabled uh, behind Xylus. Your group, was the first to identify living stem cells in the intestinal crypt. Actually, I remember as a student studying your paper not that long ago, which is really exciting. And you have been continuously pioneering the studies of these uh, so-called adult stem cells in the context of uh, cancer and uh, regeneration. So could you please walk us through your research journey and uh, highlight which key discoveries you've made along the way? Yeah, so, so before I start on our own research, there are essentially two types of stem cells, and they often get confused. There are the embryonic stem cells that only live briefly directly after fertilization, and they build an entire body. So these stem cells can make everything. And the embryonic stem cell, of course, has lots of ethical and logistical problems, but there is a synthetic version of the embryonic stem cell, which is called the iPSL, which can be made from essentially any human cell type, and it has the same capacity of being able to create any part of the human body. So that's the so-called pluripotent stem cell. So that's not what we work with. We work with adult tissue stem cells, and of, of these there are many. The best known was discovered six, seven decades ago, the bone marrow stem cell, which can make all the blood cells uh, lifelong. There's, we probably, I would estimate, in our body have at least 100 different adult stem cell types. And what they, in essence, do is they maintain our bodies lifelong. So cells work hard, they get lost, they have to be replaced. Stem cells do this, so every organ will have its own dedicated stem cells. When they sense cells are lost, they basically divide a few times to uh, replenish, to replace the cells that are lost. So the stem, there will always be stem cells in your organs. And those stem cells will constantly make additional cells to fill the ranks uh, of the, uh, the cells of the tissue of what, of, in which they live. So I already mentioned the bone marrow stem cell. When we, through serendipity, basically by chance, discovered that molecules we were working with were key to mediate so-called wind signals. And wind signals were known to be important during embryonic development when cells rapidly have to take all sorts of different decisions to finally build an entire body. There's a handful of, of signaling pathways that mediate this. They're called hedgehog and notch and wind and, and a few others. And we found a key component of the wind pathway while we were essentially studying T lymphocytes. We're not looking at all for this. But this actually, we realized this is interesting. We then started studying the wind pathway, not in early embryos, but in uh, postnatal mice. And we realized that wind factors secreted peptides, secreted proteins, not only control early development, but after birth, they control many, if not all of the stem cells that maintain these adult stem cells that maintain our bodies lifelong. And we found this because when we knocked out this, this unique component of the wind pathway that we discovered, these mice get born, but then they die in about five to six days because they fail to maintain the inner lining of the gut. 
this already put us on the on sort of on the track of of wind signaling is somehow related to the activity of stem cells in the gut. That was what we showed, but we now know probably in all of our other organs. At the same time, we discovered that mutations in the wind pathway, and this was done together with Bert Vogelstein at the Johns Hopkins, that, that activating mutations in that pathway are essentially the by far the, the most important cause of colon cancer. So on the one hand, and they were, you have to realize we were still, we were immunologists. We never thought about the gut. I knew where the gut was from my medical school, but that was about it. But uh, we realized that the same pathway maintains the inner lining of the gut lifelong and actually takes care that that gets replaced every five to seven days. So it's by far the most rapidly self-renewing tissue of our body, all driven by these wind signals. And then the cancers of that organ, colon cancer, is almost always driven by activating mutations in that that same pathway. So we realized the biology of stem cells of the gut and the biology of cancer are very, very similar. They exploit the same principle of wind signaling. Now, it then took us a number of years. This is, I'm now talking about the mid-90s. I, I converted my lab into a gut biology lab and actually moved it to, uh, to another institute. I used to be an immunology professor. Now I'm a professor in molecular genetics, and I, I then became director of a developmental biology institute, a basic science institute. And so there we eventually discovered these enigmatic uh, gut stem cells. This was done by Nick Barker, who is now in Singapore, British young postdoc, uh, who found a marker, LGR5, that, that revealed the presence of tiny cells in the lining of the gut that were constantly dividing. And when we marked them genetically, we could show that they can make, they would make rapidly every other cell type of the same lining of the gut. So within five days, if you mark, at least in mice, if you mark these, these putative stem cells with a particular color, five days later, the entire insides of the gut have that color. And that implies that these, these cells constantly replace all other cells in the gut. There was a, almost a mathematical proof of that LGR5 marks these unique stem cells. One line of research then was that we showed that LGR5 does the same thing in probably all other internal organs. Uh, although those stem cells will not make gut, but they make liver or they make lung, but they're always marked by LGR5. And we started learning about, about how these stem cells actually work in the gut. And that was very important because there was there all sorts of dogmas around stem cells. They're magical, they're very rare. They are very small, difficult to find. They don't divide or they, they divide very rarely because if a stem cell would divide, it has, has to copy its DNA, could make mistakes uh, and maybe become a, a cancer cell or maybe die. And then you would have an organ with no stem cells. That would be pretty bad. So the idea was stem cells can be defined as cells that rarely divide. There was in all the textbooks, every stem cell lab in the world looking for stem cells, they were always looking for stem for cells that were not rare, that were rarely dividing. Now these, these gut stem cells divided every day. So in, in the lifetime of a mouse, one stem cell will divide 1000 consecutive times. And for us, for humans, probably 20,000. Now, when we noted that, that these stem cells were essentially not quiescent, and that's the, the, the scientific term, but they were constantly dividing. First of all, we had to fight quite a bit to convince the field that, that these were stem cells, because everybody knew that stem cells rarely divide. So this took actually four or five years to actually convince the entire field that this is the real thing. These are the stem cells. Meanwhile, Toshi Sato, a Japanese gastroenterologist in my lab, and this is Nick discovered the, the, the stem cells 2007. We noticed how they were behaving. They're dividing constantly. Toshi Sato said, uh, when he entered my lab, he said, you know, Hans, we will try to grow these stem cells because they, they divide so rapidly in a mouse and in a human gut, it should be possible to rebuild that environment in a plastic dish and have them play the same trick. And, and to be honest, our, our intention was really to take one stem cell and turn them into a thousand or a million stem cells as a lump of stem cells. Now, I had tried to convince other people in my lab to try this experiment, but there was another dogma. So the first dogma is stem cells don't divide. The second dogma was normal tissue cannot be grown, cannot be expanded outside the mouse or human body. Normal cells will maybe stay around for a week or two weeks, but they will die. And it's only cancer cells that will continue to grow. And it's true, every cell line in the world that people have been using for research 
or for for drug development, these cells are, are cancer cells. If you if you transplant these cells into mice, they will make tumors. They will not make normal tissue. And so, so people in my lab said, no, 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 I'm not going to waste no, my three or four years in your lab on, an, on a project that's impossible. But Toshi actually had tried it in Tokyo earlier. We sat down and we figured out, you know, what are the growth factors that stem cells need that they use in the crypt to be so active, you know, divide every day, lifelong. And there were only three that we could think of. And then we'd heard from Mina Bissell that matrigel is a magical substance. It's a, it's a gel at 37 degrees. It's a liquid at zero degrees. And so you can put the cells in on ice. Then you warm it up. It becomes a little pudding with the cells in. It consists of collagens and laminins and other uh, extracellular matrix uh, components. So exactly the environment that the stem cell should like. And then just adding these three growth factors was an immediate success. So these, so a single stem cell in this gel with the three growth factors started dividing. And that was, of course, what we hoped and what everybody said was impossible. But then we realized that they were not just making stem cells, they were making structures. And this was, I think, the biggest surprise that, first of all, they never stopped growing. But rather than just replicating themselves, they produced more. They produced what Toshi immediately called mini guts. And indeed, they were almost perfect copies of the inner lining of the small intestine or of the colon. You have to realize there's about 10 cell types that we use to digest food very efficiently, to take up the nutrients, to produce mucus, all the other hormones that are produced in the gut, uh, the protection against the microbes is all done by these, these 10 cell types. Now, this one stem cell in this very simple culture medium in 3D in a gel will actually produce a structure that has all of the other cell types in the right numbers, in the right places. And it can do so for many, many years. And we first thought that they were, grow so, they were growing so fast, something must have gone wrong. They must have turned into cancers. We then did a transplantation experiment with uh, Mamoru Watanabe in Tokyo. And that experiment showed that you can take a single stem cell and I think it's really remarkable, grow it up to maybe a billion cells in the form of these mini guts, transplant them to, in this case, the first experiment was mouse to mouse, but actually currently he is doing human to human. And you can actually then transplant them to mice that have inflammatory bowel disease. And these, these small mini guts, totally synthetically grown from one stem cell, you can make millions out of them. They actually, when you bring them into the lumen of the, of the colon with inflammatory bowel disease, they find the lesions and like a living band-aid, they will land on top of these lesions and they will fill up the gaps and then persist as normal cells for the rest of the lifetime of a mouse. So really remarkable that a single stem cell in a very simple environment will grow forever and will make normal gut forever. And even when you transplant it back, it makes normal gut and it actually cures these mice. And then maybe a last sentence. Once we knew how to do this, we then slowly turned to many other organs, already said that these organs will also have stem cells that have the same LDR5 marker when they're active, but they have, they have different growth factor requirements. So you need to adapt a cocktail of growth factors for every new tissue. You have to think of liver, lung, prostate, breast, pancreas, et cetera, et cetera. But with some tinkering around, we usually can come up with a cocktail that allows the expansion of little bits of tissue in the form of these organoids, you know, mini lung, mini liver for, for years. And, and then, but we'll talk about it later, I guess, we realized that this was quite incredible technology because almost any biological experiment you would do in animals or with cell lines, you could actually do better in these human many organs or organoids. Thanks, Hans, for describing this really exciting journey of how the fundamental discovery really evolved and, and uh, shaped your career. As you alluded to, the next question we'd like to ask is really about the impact of, of this technology or discovery turned into the technology of organoids. So briefly, you mentioned that they kind of bridge the worlds of in vitro and in vivo testing because they provide better systems than just cells in the dish for testing drugs. So what are the potential breakthroughs in uh, biomedicine enabled by, by this technology? Yeah, so, so, so originally we, we thought, you know, stem cells, tissue repair, regenerative medicine. So 
Initially, a lot of our efforts went to you know, building transplantable organoids, and we've shown this with our Japanese collaborators for the gut, we've shown it for liver, and very recently, uh, actually tear glands, we could grow tear glands that can cry, and you can transplant them and they make functional tear glands. But that actually is, is probably a domain that's hard to work in for an academic lab, because almost immediately the next step would be a clinical trial. And these are exceedingly expensive and uh, time consuming. And the business model of an academic lab like mine is, uh, you know, we have ideas, we write grants, we get shorter money, we publish and we move on to the next discovery. And as long as we make discoveries, there will be always be uh, good people who want to work in the lab. And there will be you no know, money to, to think of the next idea. But we don't really have the structure in academic organizations to go from this um, proof of concept, you now mouse-to-mouse transplantation, to a to a phase one to a trial where we would transplant. Also, the challenges would be much more in the sort of safety regulatory world than it would be in, in the world where we are strong in making real discoveries. So we then realized that CRISPR actually came came about in 2012. We realized that combining CRISPR with organoids essentially allowed us to, to make any type of organoid that we want, wanted. We had started to look at um, patient-derived organoids. So rather than just growing liver, healthy liver, and look you know, how the liver works, so you, could, you could actually derive organoids from people with hereditary liver diseases or gut diseases and study that disease in great detail in a human version albeit a small version of, of a human organ. With collaborators in Utrecht, for instance, cystic fibrosis, it turned out to be, to, to be very simple to build an organoid model for cystic fibrosis directly from patients. And we have about 1,500 of these patients in Holland. For half of them, we have organoids in our biobank. And these organoids predict extremely well if a patient will or will not respond to these spectacular drugs from Vertex. Very expensive, but if they work, they're fantastic. But it, but for a large group of the patients, it was unclear. You could not predict from their DNA, from their mutations, if they would respond to the drug. So in Holland now, all these patients, about half of the patients that don't really have access to the drugs based on the fact that they have a rare mutation, we test them in the form of organoids. If the organoids work, uh, the patient is given the drug. And so far, we hear back from the clinic that this is a 100% match. When we say in, in vitro it works, there is a great clinical response as well. So this, I think, is also a link towards uh, Xylus, where very similar things are, are, are being done now for cancer, where you can grow tumors, expose the tumors to many different drugs, and then find the drugs that will kill the tumor cells of an individual patient. So this is personalized medicine. Now, in addition, I think safety toxicity could be done quite easily on, on human liver organoids, gut organoids, kidney organoids. Currently, this is being validated. It would be great to be able to replace animal experiments in toxicology by possibly more relevant human model systems. Yeah, and any other thing, you know, infectious disease, many labs in the past two years have used organoids to study COVID. Maybe one example Hydroxychloroquine is a fantastic drug when you try to uh, inhibit the, the production of virus in the typical cell lines that virology labs use. These are more fibroblast-like, they're easy to work with, they affect well. Chloroquine will kill that infection very well, but as, as we all know, chloroquine does nothing in patients. That was a big disappointment. Turns out that organoids model the infection much better. We've shown that, but many others have shown this now. So epithelial structures, the ones that we have in organoids, allow the virus to enter through the apical site where it binds to ACE2, to the receptor of the virus. But then it doesn't go into the cell by endocytosis. It actually fuses with the cell membrane that uses the spike protein for that. So that entry is very different from the way the virus enters in the in the workhorse cell lines of virology labs. And had last year had these labs not only tested hydroxychloroquine or other drugs in uh, very sick cells, for instance, but had they done it in primary organoids, gut, lung, they would have noticed that chloroquine does nothing when you give it to these primary epithelia. So we think that also in the context of not only toxicology, but in, in, in the entire drug development uh, process, from the high throughput screens to the, you know, finding your definitive candidate. Organoids are probably much better disease models if you build them well, really reflecting human disease. They're probably cheaper, a lot cheaper than animals. Uh, they're not as easy as cell lines to work with, 
but but again i believe they are much better in predicting what will be a good compound to take into a phase one so i think the entire drug development uh, process can probably be replaced by organoids if you if you build these disease models well thanks again hans for the great overview of the organoid field would love to now to talk about translating organoid technology beyond the bench. Jilling, together with Hans, you co-founded Xylus, uh, an amazing precision medicine startup developing rapid and scalable patient-derived microorganoid technology to revolutionize patient treatment response and pharmaceutical drug discovery. Uh, a true realization of a lot of what Hans has been talking about. And over the summer, wrapped up an amazing 70 million oversubscribed Series A, led by our colleagues at Mobile Adventures. Now that we've learned a bit more about organoids, can you share with us more uh, about what Xylus is doing? What's been the Xylus journey, perhaps maybe from ideation to spin out? Can you take us through the early days? What Xylus is really about is to help improve patient survival by one, really helping clinician pick the right drug for cancer patients in the clinic, and two, helping farmers talk to patients much faster and much more cheaply. So, so the journey of Xylus um, actually is very interwined with Hans, Hans' journey about discovering organoids. So in 2009, I, I, did, I did on my school at Stanford and 2009 became a professor in electrical engineering at a Cornell University. When I actually, a colleague of me just forwarded me the Hans paper and said, look, isn't that cool? Uh, so that's, that was a Hans paper on organoid, I remember published in Nature by Toshi Sato. And that just immediately kind of fascinated me because this for the first time, you can grow a whole tissue in a petri dish outside the person's body, right? That can immediately dawn on me that the things you can do and to both understand the complexity, but also testing drugs on those models with very high confidence that the drugs will work um, on patients. Now, the interesting thing is my background trained as an electrical engineer. So I was actually a circuit designer. Prior to become a professor at Cornell, I actually worked in the semiconductor industry and also you know, even worked for Texas Instruments designing circuits. And if you think about the digital revolution in the last half century, what was driving the digital revolution where we go from the vacuum tubes, right, the very first computer, ENIAC, to the, the cell phones, the computers, the laptops, the, the GPS, right, everything we have is more slow, where the underlying technology driving each transistor's performance, uh, the performance doubles every 18 months, right, faster, cheaper, and uh, more reliable, and smaller too. So when I, when I saw Hans organoid technology, one thing dawned on me is, isn't that a next revolution, right? On precision medicine. And the key is how can you scale it the same way, faster, cheaper, smaller, more reliable, higher throughput. The exact playbook that played in the semiconductor industry that drove the whole IT revolution. And more recently, the, the sequencing, right? The next generation sequencing, we're driving all the genomic technology. So, so I, that kind of just, I started to, I was so excited that I switched my lab from electrical engineering drive lab to uh, a biology lab that kind of really started working on cancer and working on stem cells, you know, a very early adopter of organoids um, kind of figured out here, you know, the very first lab that does organoid in, uh, at a Cornell University, then at a Duke University when I was recruited to Duke. So anyway, so, so in 2019, uh, Hans gave a keynote speech in the, in, the, in the center where the inaugural symposium of my Wu Center for Big Data and Precision Health, where Hans gave a fascinating like, uh, uh, a lecture on organoid technology and the future of the organoid technology. And I had a chance of you know, meeting Hans on, on over breakfast the second day and, and kind of describe to Hans what we try to be working on, which is can we grow organoids but, but in a, mini, mini, a miniaturized manner, grow tons of them in tiny little droplets so that number one, we don't need a big organoid to do experiments. We can do many different conditions, thousands of the right conditions, tiny little organoids. So, so that way you can do more, more treatment 
but also in much smaller biomass. What this enables to do is number one, right, getting from a patient sample can do diagnostic testing very rapidly and in a very reproducible manner. And, and also from, from a drug discovery uh, platform, right, can do many more drugs with much less cost and much faster speed. And also serendipitously, right, kind of going back to Hans' uh, theme about, right, less science drive, we, by using the MOS technology of microorganosphere, serendipitous finding is because they re recapitulate the tissue uh, microenvironment, it actually allows the immune cells in the tissue microenvironment to last a lot longer in our system. That suddenly right, allow us and the farmers to test immune drugs, immune oncology drugs that previously uh, the only ways to put into patients to see how they work. So this kind of really a revolution that allow, you know, really allows us to rethink how we can do, you know, how we develop a drug and how we do clinical studies for, for farmers, especially for IO drugs. So anyway, the, yeah, so, so in 2019, when I met Hans and we kind of really, Hans really see the future of this technology that translate organoids from a mainly a research tool to a really a clinical tool that can, that can, that can drive innovation, but also can change how, how patients are treated these days, because right, the majority of cancer patients are taking drugs that does not, is not effective against their tumor. So, so, so with, with that vision, we kind of set out the path and, and really got early investing excited and produced some very major breakthrough in terms, both in the clinic and with the pharma partnership and raise a big round in July, in, in July this year, that kind of really propels forward to change um, how precision medicine is done. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Thanks for going through the journey of, of, of Xyla Schilling. What an amazing uh, early run it's been for you here and exciting for the future of the field of organoids. Can you help share with us, given the significant advances of the technology, how do you think Xylus, in terms of democratizing access to oncology uh, treatments across patient populations, how, how is this enabled? If we think about diversity, it's really about each patient is unique, right? Each individual is unique. Now, if you think about under, under, underprivileged, underserved population, or right, underrepresented minority populations, these populations are grossly underrepresented in a lot of these clinical trials because the, the patient population that clinical trials usually right, target are patients that can go to you know, large teaching, teaching you know, or medical centers, right, have good insurance, while many kind of you know, underserved population right, are constrained to participate in uh, a lot of those clinical trials. Uh, for cancer therapy. And what that results in is they are also their genotypes of their population that are underrepresented in a lot of clinical trials are being underserved. So what Xylus really enables is, as I said, right, growing tumors from, from patients in a very cost-effective way and unbiased way that allows us to treat, count each individual as a unique human being and finding the best therapy for them. And, and that's really kind of going to the, the whole vision, right, about the right now the inefficiencies of the healthcare system where we treating right patients as a whole and say, oh, 30% of patients respond to the, to the treatment, great, the drug works great, while ignoring right 70%, 80% of patients that don't respond to the treatment and some of them might not was never represented in a clinical trial, right? And we are, we are ignoring such a population. So we believe this is, but the ability, right, is to 
be able to cap patients' uniqueness in a very cost-effective way. And at Zales, we are exactly working towards that goal. Jilin, you, you've touched on kind of how Xylus's organoids are uh, um, a, bit, a bit different in the fields, especially with the, the immune-related aspects that you can demonstrate. The enabling of this, I think, is truly special. Can you share with us perhaps how your organoid technology helps shape the future of drug discovery? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about right, the bottleneck of drug discovery, it's really the drug and the patient. What, I'm, what, I'm, what I mean is that right, when the pharma companies face a lot of potential compounds and each bet, right? If you take a compound to, into a clinical trial, number one, in the oncology drug space, the success rate, right, from the clinical trial is about five to 8%. So what that means is right, more than 90% of the drugs are gonna fail in clinical trials. Now, each failure, the majority happen you know, between phase one and phase two, but on average, each failure costs $600 million in four years. Now each success you know, costs about $1.7 billion. So you can imagine that's a tremendous right, risky bet. One of a pharma companies decide right out of thousands of compounds which one to take to the clinical trial. So, so, so there's a bottleneck of right, many drugs might work, but never see the light of day because that was not picked for the clinical trial. At the same time, the, the compound actually was picked going to clinical trial has a very high uh, failure rate and, and, and a tremendous you know, risky financial bet and also time consuming. The second thing is about the pharma discovery is right. No drug cures all patient. That's always the challenge of cancer because every patient's cancer is unique, right? Even you say, look, both of two people have colon cancer, but their colon cancer are different from each other. So now the challenge is which patient will respond to the drug, or which patient should participate in the clinical trial, and how do you convince a patient to to participate in the clinical trial versus another one, right? How would the patient choose? So, so finding the right patient population for the clinical trial is, is, also a huge, is, a, is also a huge bottleneck. So what Xylus uh, technology really enable is address both bottlenecks. Number one is that by providing right, a cost-effective high-throughput platform that recapitulate the, the original patient tumor in the truest form, right? Not even just the cancer, their cancer cells, but also their cancer environment, we are able to give right, our pharma partner much higher confidence in terms of, hey, these drugs are really gonna work on the real patient, not just on the cell line, right? That, that get passaged for generations as has no, does not resemble the original patient tumor at all. As you, if you remember, Hans mentioned, right? When you're growing organoids, they recapitulate, they kind of regenerate all these different cell types that make the heterogeneous tissue, right? Including tumor. While a cell line is homogeneous and does not represent, right? The heterogeneity of the original tumor. So, and the second is also, right? Providing a platform that, again, going back to your last question, really treating patients as individuals, right? We know for farmers to really understand, say, look, how likely this drug is gonna work, what percentage of the patients, right? And, and what, are, what are the patients that are likely to respond to, to this drug so we can design the clinical trial accordingly. But then second is once they pick the, the compound, right? With much higher confidence now, going, to, going into the clinical trial, what our technology allows is on several fronts. Number one is that kind of really, you know, providing a very accurate companion diagnostic assay, right, to test whether before a patient even start taking the drug, how likely that patient is going to respond to the treatment. You can imagine, right, the tremendous value of being able to predict the patient's response and, and select the patients that are most likely to respond. That are going to completely change the equations of how clinical trials designed, right? You can imagine now you can potentially shrink the patient population from 1,000 to hundreds if you can do this at first. And second is also is right with our whole arm of we have uh, developing the diagnostic assay because we are also having clinical trials 
you know, FDA increased emissions to really making these MOS assay, this, the diagnostic assay for standard of care for cancer patients. So you can imagine now you have cancer patients who, after doing our assays, shown that they are not going to respond to the standard of care. In that case, is, right, we, our technology can provide a way to help predicting which clinical trial they will benefit the best or the most from. So with that way, right, we can really channel patients towards the right clinical trial, making the whole system much more efficient and much more uh, beneficial to both the patients and to the farmers and also to the healthcare system by, again, guiding the right, the right, right drug to the right patient and avoid all the inefficiencies of non-effective treatments, both in the clinic and also you know, during the farmer drug development. At the end of the day, when Xylus follows through on its mission, what will the world look like? How will patients be impacted? Yes. So what we envision is Xylus is really a hub. Actually, we already have a name, Xylus Hub, actually where all the patient data and, and, and testing being stored there. So the, what a Xylus Hub is do, are gonna do is kind of like the hub for cancer care. Uh, or, or you can even imagine, right, analogy, you know, Google Ventures, one of our, our investors, and we're going to be the Google for cancer care in terms of it, it's the place where patients, clinicians, pharmaceutical companies, insurance, right, payers, academics all go to look for the best treatment for the patients. So what we are essentially doing is two at a two fronts. One is we are going to improve over the board the drug efficacy and the patient survival. Will we achieve that by first allow clinician to pick the right drug um, for the patient, right? Before putting the drug on the, in the patient, you know, treating them as guinea pig to find out whether they're going to respond, right? High confidence that the drug is going to work on the patient. And also, right, allowing the farmers to pick the right clinical trial, right, which is the right drug and for the right patient. So in that way, we can really improve the efficacy of the drug being very precise. But second is also reducing cost to the society, right, in a tremendous way. As all we all know, right, with all the new drugs coming up, right, for the cancer patients, the overall healthcare is getting more and more expensive, and it's not sustainable, right, growing this way. Well, and in, that's in US, but now if you look at Europe, right, often many countries have a single payer system that's actually kind of the, the opposite where, right, you, you know, whether drug is uh, allowed is determined by this, you know, ag aggregated overall the population number, right? Let's say if a drug only improve the survival by three months or two months, then that might be deemed, you know, not, not worth it. However, for individual patients, the drug might, might have right, much better benefits. So, so how do you balance between right, really bring, you know, treating patient first and bring the maximum benefit to them while also right, reducing cost to the whole society? So the Xylus offers a solution by avoiding ineffective, ineffective treatments in the clinic right, and, and bring the right treatment to the right patient, even if that drug might only work on 5% of the patient, but if that can cure 5% of the patient, right, that's, that's ultimately what matters. So Xylus would allow such treatment to be used on the patients for the maximum benefit while reducing the cost to the overall society by avoiding subjecting 95% of the other patients to the treatment if that drug is not gonna work. And also then again, also reduce cost society by dramatically reducing drug development costs by both de-risk and speed up clinical trials for the farmers. We'd like to um, focus a bit on academic entrepreneurship, especially given that this is the first time we at BIOS are hosting two co-founders who work across the Atlantic. And this really presents us with uh, an opportunity to learn uh, about the differences in the syner synergies of entrepreneurial ecosystems. So could I ask both of you to please comment on how biotech entrepreneurship in your respective ecosystems differs and how do entrepreneurs think differently about bioinnovation, if at all? 
So yeah, so I, I think first, right, as Sasha, as, as you mentioned, interestingly, right, we are working across the landing, you know, across the palm, and also we are across the discipline, right? You know, I was trained as an engineer, as I said, even electrical engineer, and Hans again also has a very elaborate path, right, from a immune oncologist to you know developmental and and to stem cell biology. So number one, I think is really what's what's very important is that right bring different minds together right so 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 kind of you know we are thinking about right so but driven by the same vision so in terms of hans and me and also our other co-founder david Shu, who is a medical oncologist who is a doctor right think about well, what made this technology available is hans a stem cell biologist david uh, a medical oncologist a clinician and a me an engineer because what's important is right well, we all have a we all have a common vision Right, how to improve cancer care for patients, right? We are all driven by the common vision, but then each bring very different perspectives and skill sets, right? Hunts are deep on biology, David really understand the clinical practice. And for me, right, really bringing technology engineering to make things smaller, faster, and higher throughput, which is, you know, not most biologists don't necessarily think that way. So, so, so with that, right, by combining discipline, we are able to make innovations, but really addressing critically a met need, um, right? Solving a important questions by bringing different skill sets together rather than, right, kind of a lot of academic research where I know what I know and kind of try to make the next move, right? Kind of addressing world's uh, problem requires kind of a team, not one individual. So I think this is kind of, and, and then second is working across Atlantic is also essential for success of our company, because, you know, as I mentioned, we bring very different skill sets and also the, even the healthcare, right, in the both countries are very different. This would allow us, right, so how would a technology will work in a single payer system, right, there uh, versus a, let's say in the a, in a, in US, which is a very much more distributed and individualized system and kind of really got us to think about how that works. One other aspect is, of course, why is this company primarily, why did it start in the US and why didn't it start you know, around uh, my academic center? So it is clear that that the, the biotech world in the US is, is a decade ahead of what we do in Europe in terms of investment money, but also experience of you know, how to build a company, how to find the right people to move in. I think a, a huge problem we have in, in, in Europe is the, the hesitance of the, of the university bureaucrats who see you know, company activities from their campus as a bit of a threat to their image. Maybe somebody becomes rich, which is not you know, the thing they want to see with individual employees. They take risks when there's going to be patients involved. And that is... That world is definitely much more mature in the U.S. Having said that, I think uh, we're planning a, a subsidiary in Holland, which I'm very happy about. And I think our healthcare system is actually, I'm not sure if I can say this here, but I think it's much better structured than in the U.S. It's, it's much easier to fathom how it works. Everybody has access. Patients stay for very long periods of time with the same doctors in the same hospitals. So it's much easier to follow them over time. So I think in that sense, it's, it's complementary what we're trying to do. And yeah, maybe along the lines of Zeeling already said, what I also realized, what at least some, some American universities have, is this merger of engineering and, and biomedical sciences. I've seen it at MIT. I've seen it at Caltech. Now Duke University clearly has it. And that, again, in Europe tends to be, they tend to be in different universities. So we have technical universities where all the, say, the Philips Electronics, uh, ASML chip industry in, in Eindhoven, my hometown, comes from. We have, you know, aviation industry, Fokker, and that's no longer exists. But in Delft, those are technical universities. They produce engineers. And then there are the classical universities that have medical schools and they produce biologists and chemists and physicists, and, uh, but not engineers. And I think what we see particularly in, in Xylis is this merger of deep biological insights, clinical insights with extremely skilled engineering. And, and I think that's, that's a unique part of, of the company. But also I see that the US are much better in this than, than we are in Europe in bringing these two very different worlds together. I'd like to ask, how do your experiences in uh, spinning out um, the companies from your labs uh, make you think differently about research? 
Yeah, so what I've, I've been involved in a few companies earlier. And what I've realized is the way at least my lab goes about its business, uh, making unexpected discoveries, is very opportunistic. So we basically don't ask deep questions ahead of, what we're, of, of our experiments. We just keep our eyes open and then hope to see you know, pleasant surprises there. A company has, you know, as we say in Holland, a dot on the horizon. You have to go there. And it's much harder. So there's only one, there's only, you know, the, 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 the success is a, is a thing that you define ahead of, of your start. And you're not allowed to move around that aim too much. Your investors are around, you know, all the other planning that the company that, that's built around the company is aimed to, to that one, to that one piece of success. So I actually find it much more challenging to see a company succeed much more demanding than to publish a few papers in nature, for instance, where basically we don't say ahead of time, we're going to write a paper on this, isn't that in two years in nature, we basically make discoveries and we write them up. So, so I must say, I, I, and I do like challenges. I do like the idea of, you know, we, we put ourselves a, a huge question and we're going to solve it. And it's, it's that question that we're going to solve. I think number one is sometimes being in academia, we can be paralysis by analysis, right? We can be just as a kind of Hans point too, right? Like this strong hypothesis, think too much because, you know, when you go into the real world, things are going to change. So it's very important to start doing it and adjust and getting information, right? Building up something rather than try to plan out everything from the beginning because it never go according to plan. Second, I think it's very important to be an academic entrepreneur like while we're working with investors is to really work backwards. What I mean is, right, we had to identify if, if your product or vision actually gonna work, what would be the ultimate market size, right? And what is the critical amount need that you are addressing? Because if you say, oh, this something is, you know, interesting and cool, right, in an academic setting, but the market size the end market market size does not does not justify the investment it would take to make a final product, right? That's going to work 100% of the time. Then this is will never happen. So I think as an entrepreneur, you have to address a critical amount need, right? It's not something 10% better than the current solution because the inertia to switch to a new product, right? 10% improvement does not justify. It, it had to be something that change, right? How how things are done. And then second is the really kind of, you know, having a convincing argument about how, right, what the ultimate market size is going to be that worth the, the investment. The last thing is also, it's very important, right, during uh, company building is to look for proof point or external validation. What I meant is that during your development, right, the, invest, the investors, your partners need a constant confirmation that hey, you're you are on the right track and things are going to work, right? And it's addressing the right market. You are building the right product. So what I meant is that, right, you have, we, you know, as an academic entrepreneur, rather than in academia where you spend three, four years, right, then write it up and, and submit to nature and, and having peer review then, right? During when company building, constantly we have to work with partners, right, to test our system, to get a valuable data and get a confirmation from them to our investors say, look, Zalus is building something that's gonna work and it's truly valuable. So I think that's the kind of the third advice I give to the audience, which is like constantly looking for proof points and external validation and plan your product uh, roadmap around that. Thank you both once again for joining us. A few rapid fire questions before we come to a closing here. Hans, if we can zoom out for a second here and take a look at the broader landscape of life sciences to help maybe wrap some context up for our audience here. The organoid fields progress rapidly. What do you think is still ahead, perhaps more for the field? What would you say are the grand challenges facing life sciences over the next 30 years? I think the biggest challenge is that the, the, the technical possibilities ever since I entered this field uh, almost 40 years ago, are still growing exponentially. You know, it was PCR, it was monoclonal antibodies, it was CRISPR, sequencing technologies, imaging technologies, organoids maybe. So it becomes 
everything be, will become possible. Uh, it's going to be uh, a matter of, of cost. I think it's going to be extremely important that the application of what we're all discovering now remains affordable for society. Because we develop these incredible drugs or, or promise the development of incredible drugs, but there's so many being developed at the same time. And then the whole, say the, the clinical stages of drug development have become so expensive that it will become impossible to actually translate what we are finding into products that are useful for mankind. So I think we'll, we'll need technologies maybe like organized that make that democratize the development of drugs. So maybe you don't need to hand them over to Big Pharma for the, for the billion dollar phase three registration trial, but maybe things become easier, maybe with IA, maybe with better design trials, uh, better models. That I think is going to be a huge problem. We create so much insight and so much knowledge that it will be almost it'll, it'll become almost impossible to actually now use it you know for the next generation drugs for many of the challenges that we'll be facing right aging cancer infectious disease resistance against existing drugs etc etc now that we've painted the challenges of life sciences over the next 30 years let's flash forward to the realization that vision can you describe biotech in 2050 for us where will we be yeah so i hope that actually biotech and academia will will merge will come closer so that actually it will be within the reach of an academic scientist to translate the findings through a not too large biotech not requiring you know hundreds of millions but maybe less money to take the, the finding to something that's useful. And this will, I think, heavily rely on technologies that are currently being developed that will make the whole drug development process cheaper and will then also sort of solidify or, or how do you say this, condense the trajectory that, that a discovery goes through before it reaches uh, the market. And so you don't need these huge organizations to actually do this, but maybe an academic institution of a good size and biotechs around it would already be good enough to then yield products that are useful for mankind. And Jilling, to tack onto that, where will Xylus be in 2050? Yeah, actually, you know, very much concurring with what Hans just said. And, you know, what, what, what we are looking at biotech in 2050, it's just kind of like, you know, again, the same analogy, right? A electroengineer in 1950, you know, try to make a, a little radio with two vacuum tubes looking 50 years ahead, right? Where we are now with the iPhones and, and laptops, right? And everything. So as, as Hans said, which is that, right? We are gonna provide a platform, not just improving clinical, right? Decisions, but also we can imagine the future, we democratize not just the treatment, but, and, 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 but also the research and drug discovery, right? A individual investigator or someone could right think of an idea, you know, think about a target, you know, go to, you know, go to, for example, Zalus Hub, right, the biobank, you know, finding out pathways, the order test, right, gonna be done very quickly. You know, does that compound potentially work on, on that tumor? And doing this very rapidly on a much more individualized space and really unlock all the innovations, right? Like just like in the IT industry, what what all the you know all the computers, cloud computing is enabled is many of those IT right startups that have an innovative idea and can be uh, tested quickly and cheaply. I think you know 50 years. Uh, from now, from a biotech industry, it's a very similar idea, right? Just like, for example, right, how many companies are still making their own chips, right? Almost zero, right? It, you, you, you design something, you order from TSMC from Taiwan, and then the next thing you get it, right? I, I think for, from uh, the biotech, right, technologies such as Alice, right, gonna, and also with all the next generation sequencing and everything, hopefully an AI will come together and provide a, a, a platform, right, where they really kind of hiding a lot of the complexity from the, the average users who are able to use the platform on thinking on a higher level, right, rather than now every scientist, right, the 80% of the time spend on pipetting, right, in the lab, but really, really liberate people from and innovators from that, that, that kind of, you know, daily time drain, but kind of allow them to do things on a higher level in a much more efficient way and having confidence that tie right straight to the patient response. 
Thank you both once again for joining us. I think it's safe to say uh, a better, brighter future for patients is, is on the way. Well, one last question then for you both. We've touched on some fantastic topics today. How can our listeners learn more about your work, Hans? Yeah, so it's probably easiest to go you know, to do a Google search. Uh, Hans Klevers, my Dutch name. Uh, you'll counter me and, and the website that gives a lot of the science that my lab has been doing. But also you'll see clever hands who apparently was a horse about a century ago who could count and traveled around the U.S. and convinced many, many people that this horse was a mathematician. That's great to hear, Hans. Thanks for sharing and, and jilling. How about yourself with Xylo? Yeah, also, you know, we are one Google search away, and you can go to our website, uh, xylis.com, X-I-L-I-S.com, and there's a lot of information there, but also there's a link where you can reach reach out to us if you have ideas, thoughts, you know, proposals. At the same time, yeah, you can always kind of reach out to me personally if you have, you know, thoughts and questions. And by the way, last thing is Zalus will be pretty active in right kind of kind of you know the important meetings such as you know ASCO, that's the you know the clinical you know conference for cancer or JP Morgan meetings. So also you know feel free to reach out to us in those venues. And for more on Zylus, please check out BIOS Medium where you can find a spotlight we publish on Jilling and his journey with Zylus. Thank you once again. Hans and Jillian for an incredible episode. Very grateful for your time. Thanks once again for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.